You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.12. They're just little guys, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and if this episode doesn't do well, Nina's going to cut my salary in half. In half! And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam and sincerely delighted by this week's episodes. Bad news for all of you, because that means I had less to say in the talkback. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 601 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Trevor K. and Mark J. And another special thank you to Mike from Orlando for supporting us on Ko-fi. Listener support is what keeps the lights on and the Gundam takes flowing. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting us today by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, making a one-time payment on Ko-fi, buying us research materials from our wishlist, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. This week, we are covering part of SD Gundam Mark V, which was released on October 25th, 1990. Mark V is divided into five segments. The second and fourth segments are each a bit over ten minutes long and tell independent stories, while the first, third, and fifth segments constitute a mini-series with a total runtime of just over seven minutes. On the podcast this week, we are going to be talking about the mini-series, which is known as Pikirienta Poresu, and the second segment, Hakobiya Rigazi no Kiseki, or a Miracle of Rigazi the Shipper. We will return to the fourth segment, Gandamu Go Ninshu no Mononoke Taiji, or The Five Gundams Ghost Extermination, next week. It's going to be Ghostbusters, isn't it? It's going to be Gundam Ghostbusters. Pikirienta Poresu was directed by Amino Tetsuro, with music by Okada Toru, and character designs by Inano Yoshinobu. Inano is also the only key animator to be credited for these three micro-shorts. He had previously worked as an animation director on Char's Counterattack, and as a key animator on five episodes of War in the Pocket, as well as Space Runaway Ideon, Royal Space Force, Macross Do You Remember Love, and The Transformers The Movie, among other very good-looking animation of the era. Just a few years after this, Inano would step away from hand-drawn animation to become one of the early champions of computer-generated animation, a field in which he remains prominent today. The voice cast for Picerienta Poresu includes a lot of familiar folks, including the voice actors for Amuro, Bright, Camille, Hathaway, and Haman, as well as the voice actors behind future Gundam characters Zex and Maribel Gadget. Miracle of Rigazi the Shipper was made by Amino as writer and chief director, Takamatsu as assistant director, Oshima Yasuhiro as animation director, and Kenji Kawai handled the music. For this short, Takiguchi Junpei joined the voice cast as the Hyakushiki. Born in 1931, Takiguchi was Japan's first voice actor to appear on a commercial broadcast. He was also a radio drama star, as well as a trailblazer in anime voice acting, with roles in landmark productions like Astro Boy, Jungle Emperor, Moomin, Lupin III, and Tomino's Triton of the Sea. He continued voice acting right up until his passing in 2011, but this was his only stint as a character for Gundam. And now, Nina's recap.
On a stony planet, little blobby creatures, vaguely reminiscent of mobile suits, dig a huge stone spire out of the ground. Standing on each other's shoulders, the little dudes form a tower, which then collapses into a wheel before springing apart. The whole crowd of them start arguing, slap fighting, shoving, and headbutting each other, but eventually go back to digging. Unfortunately, once the spire is completely dug out, it tips over, crushing the three little guys who are trying to hold it upright. The rest are able to roll it off of them, and once free, the three combine into one much larger blobby guy, who blushes while the others bounce around, chanting and babbling. We return to the little stony planet to find the blobbies using a lever to right the stone spire. But in keeping with how the process has gone so far, the spire wobbles and falls, launching the little blobby at the end of the lever into the air. As they fly across the sky, they spot what appears to be a huge red mobile suity blob embedded in the earth just a little ways away. They shout down to their friends about it before hitting the ground and immediately dying. Their ghost rises up from their corpse, scaring all their friends, who form another mobile suit blob tower. Yet again, the tower collapses into a wheel, but this time it lights up and then explodes. The explosion forms a new large mobile suit blob, this one looking a bit like a Zeong. It shoots eggs from its mouth, and moments later the eggs hatch and new, smaller baby blobbies emerge, squeaking and hopping up and down around their mama. In the third and final short, the baby blobbies swarm over a scaffold. The huge red mobile suity blob has mostly been excavated and is being carefully reassembled, while the adult blobs watch from a distance. The moment the construction is complete, a fight breaks out among the baby blobbies. They rain down from the scaffolding. Adult blobs come running to see what the fuss is about, and the Zeong-ish blob shoots another egg from its mouth. This one hits the red mobile suit blob in the face, causing it to wake up with a roar. It's a bit like a dinosaur, with a long tail and a mouth full of pointy teeth. All the other blobs run away, but three are scooped up and swallowed by the newly awake monster, combining on the way down its throat to form a single, sparkling, golden blobby. In place of a stomach, the monster has a cockpit, and the gold blob flies the monster into space. Moments later, it falls back to the planet's surface. Every critter is killed and becomes a ghost. An old ghost with a long beard leads them all in a rousing chorus of bopping uhu, while the Zeong blob zips around the planet backwards. Miracle of Rigazi the Shipper opens with a TV advertisement. Whatever your shipping needs, Rigazi shipping is fast and cheap and promises that your goods will be A-OK. -okay. After the ad, the station returns to the news. The Psycho 2 Kanon statue has sold, setting a new record for the world's most expensive artwork. The purchaser is richest man on the planet, Hyakushiki, who in a live interview describes the artwork as an impulse purchase, art collecting as his little hobby, and rants about taxes. A doorbell rings, and the camera zooms out to show that the TV is in the Rigazi shipping office. While their secretary Kubele types away at the front desk, Rigazi and his partner Agugai, dressed in orange coveralls, wait for their next job. Who should come in but Zok, Hyakushiki's butler? Sweating nervously, he explains that he's there to hire them to move the Psycho 2 Kanon. Hyakushiki has made it clear that if anything goes wrong, Zok will spend the rest of his career on half pay. But he also refuses to pay for a more reputable shipping service. With so much at stake, Zok will be accompanying them. At the art museum, the sculpture is heavily protected. A pair of guards, four sets of locked doors, numerous traps, and a decoy. An exact replica of the actual Psycho 2 Canon, but where the real one is a dull brown, clay, or bronze, the decoy is golden and certainly looks more like what one would expect for the most expensive artwork in the world. They pack the real one into a nondescript, hard-sided carrying case and load it into the flatbed of the Ashimar truck. The first half of the trip may have gone smoothly, but the return journey is anything but. The case slides around unsecured while the truck drives over tightly curving mountain roads. Hyakushiki keeps calling the video phone to check in and berate Zok to be more careful, and one after another, four thieves begin to chase them, three from cars and one from an airship. 
but Rigazi keeps assuring Zok and Hyakushiki that everything is okay. After tying a rope to one end of it, he tosses the statue off the back of the truck, where all the thieves descend on it and begin to fight each other over the prize. While the thieves are distracted, the shippers reel the statue back in and drive away. But it isn't long before the thieves catch up. One of them, who looks rather like Captain Harlock, shoots down the pursuing airship, which takes the bridge ahead down with it. Rigazi hits the gas and tries to jump the gap, just barely making it, with back wheels hanging precariously off the edge. Two pursuers also try to cross and fall well short, but the third hits the cliff wall below the Ashimar truck and it begins to slide backward into the gap. As the truck tips, the case with the statue slides too, and the desperate Zok throws himself after it, hanging onto it by his fingertips. Just as the thieves climb up onto the precariously balanced truck, the Hyakushiki calls again. With an air of supreme calm, Rigazi breaks the video phone from the truck console and throws it to the back of the truck, tipping the balance and sending truck, artwork, and every last person involved in the whole debacle crashing to the ground. The Psycho 2 Kanon is, unsurprisingly, busted to pieces. But Agugai scoops up all the bits, and the imperturbable Rigazi scoops up Zok, repeating in a soothing tone that everything will be okay. And it is. Prominently displayed in Hyakushiki's mansion, the decoy statue looks marvelous. Hyakushiki, none the wiser about the switcheroo, is proud as punch and gives Zok a raise. And Rigazi and Agugai live to ship another day. I am completely and utterly charmed by these Pikirienta Poresu shorts. I'm not sure what exactly is the right term whether to call them experimental, or surreal, or avant-gardist, but they represent, to me, the most positive outcome of a group of animators being given a chunk of money and told, do whatever you want, <laughs> as long as it's somewhat related to Gundam. They created these little blobby characters that have V-fins, or have heads shaped like mobile suits' heads. That is their only connection <laughs> to mobile suits in any way, except later when one of them is revealed to be a mobile suit with a different little blobby person in the cockpit. <laughs> uh, rather than little blobby people, the way they are frequently referred to in the Japanese is um, Haniwa. Oh, Haniwa. Haniwa Gundams or Haniwa Zaku. Haniwa are little clay figures with a kind of like rounded blobby kind of proportions. Um, they post-date the dogu figurines that I talked about in a research piece fairly recently um, and sort of grew out of a different cultural milieu. For those of you who play Animal Crossing, I believe the the little dancing figurines that you can dig up and that also play music are also based on Haniwa, I think. Yeah, they show up a fair amount in different Japanese games and shows and stuff like that. They're a major part of the Japanese archeological record. They were buried as like funerary goods in Kofun era tombs. But coming back to Pikirienta, everything about it is hyper simplified. The visual design, the color schemes, the fact that most of what they're saying is nonsense. I say most because I occasionally felt as though I could pick out Japanese words, konya, shimata, deke. <laughs> when one of them <laughs> blushes after it merges with several other ones and becomes big. <laughs> a bunch of them say, Dekeso. <laughs> Seems big. <laughs> but it is, for the most part, nonsense. As you could tell from the recaps, very simple plots that are easy to follow. And the whole thing essentially done by just one animator. Really? Mm-hmm. Inano Yoshinobu, who was quite influential. He was also the character designer, so you can thank him for the Haniwa Gundams. I don't know that we're going to have a ton to say about the Picarienta shorts beyond what we already have, but there were several little details I really enjoyed. 
in the first of the shorts when they're digging out the big brown stone spire and it's standing straight upright. The crater is red, and so it looks like a flower and the stamen of a flower mm. sticking up. The fact that the Haniwa Gundam have tiny hands, <laughs> like <laughs> tiny, tiny humanish hands with five fingers, even though the rest of them is sort of blobby and formless. That makes me think of like old Disney, like Mickey Mouse, where you have the very thin noodly arms, but then the big white gloved hands that really stand out from the rest of the design. Except this is the reverse. We have big squishy arms and little tiny hands. But the contrast. <laughs> when the one that is flying through the air is shouting back to his buddies on the ground, they give him speech bubbles. But they don't fill the speech bubbles with fake language. They fill the speech bubbles with pictures, which I thought was a cute touch. Mm -hmm. Also that while that one is flying through the air, they managed to convey a sense of motion by changing the background gradient. So even though there's no background detail flying past and there are no speed lines or blurring, there is still a sense of motion. The baby Haniwa Gundams have slightly different eyes than the adults. They get the little uh, white highlights in their eyes, whereas the adults do not. These are the ones that are born from the eggs ejected from the mouth of the kind of Zeong-like one. Yes, indeed. Which just made me think of a gacha machine, spitting out gacha capsules that mm -hmm. pop open to give you the toy. Yeah, lots of fun details in this one, lots of creative ideas, and nothing overstays its welcome. Mark V is really the last of these original SD Gundam shorts. It's fun to see in it, especially in Pikiri Antaporasu, how... SD Gundam has evolved from that first, you know, rolling colony affair or even before that from the shorts that aired alongside Char's counterattack. And I remember when we first started covering these, we looked at an interview from Amino and he said basically they picked me because nobody at Sunrise knew how to do this. And over the course of a couple of years, we've seen them grow more confident. We've seen them grow more experimental. And I think the SD stuff they're doing at this stage is for the most part, leagues better than what they were doing at the beginning. At the same time, there's still clear influence from those early experiments. There is a sense of growth and that maybe they couldn't have gotten to this point without those earlier ones that weren't as good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pikiri Antaporasu ends with <laughs> this old, like, bearded ghost Haniwa Gundam teaching all of the new ghosts about Bopin Ufun, which has now managed to transition from the sort of like nonsense thing that we encountered back in Rolling Colony Affair. And we were like, what does this mean? What's the point of it? Why is it here? What are they doing? To now where it's actually like charming and delightful to see that callback. Like, oh yeah, Bopin. If only they'd had Woody in it. If only the last of the Pikirienta Porasus had ended with all of the Haniwas dying. And then instead of meeting the bearded ghost, it's Woody. And he just <laughs> says, Woody this. Sunrise, let me rewrite your 30-year-old series. Put me in charge. Unrelated to the short itself, but worth a mention, I believe this is the first time we've seen the emotion intro. Mm. Yeah, a good point. The emotion intro, emotion is Bondi's home video label. Um, Presumably, the emotion intro has been on all of these VHS releases, and while it gets included on the DVD and Blu-ray re-releases, it does so, you know, at the beginning of the disc, as we would expect for an intro card. But here, because they do a fade directly from the emotion intro and into those same Moai statue heads in the Pikirienta Porasu world, they have to include it feels like the epitome of an 80s video intro. The neon colors and neon styled animation, the music. Mm -hmm. uh, so nostalgic. Yes, very. And gives you a sense for how this work was created for the particular format, designed specifically to be released on VHS with this particular intro at this particular moment in time. 
I would absolutely class these shorts among the ones I would recommend people watch. All three of them together, like Tom said, it's eight minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> or thereabouts. Well worth the time. It's even got some classic Gundam themes in it. Like when they create the the younger Haniwa Gundams, the second generation, if you will, and then the older ones just stand back and let them do all the work. That's Gundam, baby. We'll leave you to think about the implications of that as we move on to talk about A Miracle of Rigazi the Shipper, or Sipper. We've noted this before, but I think we are approaching or possibly hitting peak using English for cool factor. (laughs) It's this very swoopy, swishy, stylized typeface for the title, and it's all written in the Roman alphabet, again with the neon colors, and they reuse one of the songs from... I want to say the private school battle. Yes, one. the Storm Calling School Festival. It's the I, my, me, your steady girl one. First things first, I don't think this one is quite SD. All the figures are a little too tall. I think mm. it's, like you said, MD, <laughs> only moderately deformed, not super deformed. Well, perhaps, but the Zock, for instance, the butler Zock, is very squished. But not the Rigazi. Well, no. It sort of varies among characters depending on the vibe that they want. The Hakushiki is more squished. The Kubile is just like the same Kubile we've seen every episode. I love that they keep using the Kubile. They just like her so much. I like that they've decided to turn the Kubile's already very broad shoulders explicitly into a blazer with big shoulder pads. Yes. Well, and Kubile has always had very like pointy fingers and they've now just like painted the tips of them red. They did that in the travel one as well. Ah, yep. nice. On my second watch through of this, I realized how many interesting little details they added to the animation of what is a deceptively simple story and short. They show the TV advertisement for Rigazi the Shipper twice. And both times, characters are watching it on TV, and so they add effects over the animation so that it's like you're watching it on an old tube TV. There is a very faint sort of striping or striation across it. There's a flickering of the brightness Mm. like you would get with old tube TVs. They didn't have to do that, but it... It adds a little something when they then zoom away from that TV and we're looking at a scene of those characters watching the television. There's a point inside the Rigazi's office when the camera angle is from above the ceiling fan and looking down at everybody, which is an unusual choice. feel like that's a camera angle I've seen in noir before because Mm -hmm. they like to include the shadows from the fan in the shot or the fan's movement or whatever, but adds unnecessary complexity to their job of animating the scene, but looks so cool. And when compared to prior episodes, does reveal that growth in the artistic ambitions of the SD team. The early SD shorts didn't really try to do anything creative with the camera work. It was very standard, by the book, by the numbers. You described this as a pretty simple story, and it is. Where it really sings, then, is in the the details and the visual gags, as well as the sense of characterization for this very small but really well-developed cast. The totally unbothered Blase Rigazi. <laughs> Daijobu. And he's got that, like, very soft-spoken voice, just like, daijoubu, daijoubu. Everything's okay. All okay. (laughs) Everything is always okay. Don't worry, don't worry. The agu guy just going like... (laughs) (laughs) The sweaty, impoverished butler, desperate to get his job done. Whose clothes are heavily patched. I don't know if you noticed. Mm -hmm. There's the very obvious shot when he's hanging on by the tips of his fingers to the case with the priceless statue in it and the camera (laughs) hits him in the butt and we're seeing the crotch of his pants which has been patched already and is tearing again but there are various other shots where you can see patches on his Mm -hmm. suit like i said these are well-developed characters for how little they 
say or do. You mentioned the camera. I love that they've kept the Hyakushiki character in the story via this like teleconferencing setup they have. So he can be participating even though he's not present. They made the Hyakushiki extremely over the top. Sorry, they made the Hyak- they made the gold-plated mobile suit over the top. It didn't it didn't start out over the top. The gold-plated mobile suit did not originally have fur trim or a vaguely I want to say pro wrestling inspired lion head belt (laughs) or a coat full of jewels and watches and I think there was like a a dagger made out of crystal in there there was a dagger I made special note of the dagger or earrings this Yakushiki has hoop earrings and a massive diamond on a chain around its neck well the Hyakushiki would have had all of those things if Anaheim Electronics had gotten Quattro's note. He was very specific about how he wanted it finished. One of the things that they change pretty significantly from other SD shorts, that's only weird if you think too much about it, is they added a ton of detail to their faces to make them look more human. The eyes look more like human character eyes. They gave them wrinkles and frown lines and smile lines and they open their mouths to talk, and there's a tongue in there, (laughs) and a uvula, which is weird, but there you go. Gentle listeners, this is the first time you've heard Nina talking about the mobile suit's uvula, uvulae? I don't know. But it's not the first time I have. She hasn't been able to let it go since we watched this short. The Zoc is sweating nervously through the whole thing. (laughs) Where are they sweating from? What pores? I thought it was actually quite brilliant to do the Zoc with its like weird head depression as a bald old man. Although what's especially weird is that the Zoc as a mobile suit is gigantic and he's the smallest character by far in this short. It's only shown very briefly, but the design of the art museum really felt like a lot of art museums that I've been to because you have this contrast of old buildings and new buildings and sculptures out in the gardens and some pseudo castle stuff going on. Like, this very odd but fun mishmash of different styles. What I thought was, that looks like a mini golf course. <laughs> the castle in particular has a mini golf vibe. Did you notice that the two guards at the museum who are gyms, right? Jagans. Jagans. Excuse me. Ugh. The shame. I'll never <laughs> live it down. The two Jagans, who are guards at the art museum, have a one and a two on their heads. I did notice that. So I just thought of them as thing one and thing two. Pretty much. Did you notice that they're both kind of paunchy? They've given the mobile suits bellies? I did not, but that's great. Oh, in the advertisement, the Rigazi's Ashimar truck, mm-hmm. which I love is being attacked by some fighter planes that look like skulls, flying skulls. Yep. Are they from anything or was Probably. Some, somebody was just like <laughs> skull planes. No, they looked very familiar to me, though I couldn't I couldn't tell you what they were. Speaking of references, once they have the statue and they're being attacked by all of these potential thieves, Tom will tell you I looked up at one point and said, "Hey, that's just Lupin." Yeah, the gabflay is very clearly Lupin. With the green blazer and the red tie. Then there's a Shars Gelgug, which is dressed up like Captain Harlock. And two other thieves who we couldn't quite place. We tried to see if there was some specific influence. But even when I looked at Japanese fan sites talking about this episode, even when they identified Lupin and Harlock, I couldn't find anybody who could put a specific name to either of the other two. I think they're just generic bandit outfits. One of them is clearly a ninja. Mm -hmm. This is a yacht doga dressed up like a ninja. It's uh, flying in on what looks like an armor-plated blimp. Based on the Zanzibar spaceship. Wow, okay. But (laughs) has the small sickle stuck in its belt, the sickle weapon. A comma? Yes. For the people who aren't ninja nerds, I wanted to describe it in English. (laughs) And the other one is wearing a sort of partially open vest and then 
bands that could maybe be furry or maybe just be cloth at its wrists and ankles, which I thought was sort of generic barbarian vibes, but you had thought it was something else. Yeah, it's basically the same outfit that the little kid thief wears in Tezuka Osamu's Dororo. And I feel fairly certain I've seen it in other period pieces as a kind of bandit ruffian outfit. No pants, just a long sort of vest, leg warmers and arm warmers. Yet another small but enjoyable detail in this short is that the music towards the end of the short is diegetic. It's playing in the car radio. And so they adjust the volume of it relative to where we are with the characters vis-a-vis the Yashimar. (laughs) I love when they do that. Yeah, me too. Uh, And even as they are all falling through the air to crash land on the beach, the Rigazi still completely calm, arms folded, insisting that all will be daijobu. And it was in the end. That is the moral of the story. Honestly, the ending is brilliant. The actual canon gets completely destroyed and they give the fake one, which is all shining gold, but is only intended to be a decoy to fool thieves into taking the less valuable canon instead of the ancient historical artifact. Well, everything about the Hyakushiki's depiction is a send up of the sort of nouveau riche stereotype of Someone who makes all of their wealth extremely obvious, is extremely abrasive to everyone. So tacky. Flashy, showy. Greedy. Buys things because they are expensive, but without actually knowing anything about them or their value. He has no idea what the canon actually looked like. So when he gets the gold one, he's just like, oh yeah, this looks right. This is appropriate for me, the richest man in the world. But... This is actually foreshadowed earlier in the episode because when he and the gym interviewer are talking about the canon, all they have is a like a pencil drawing of it. Yep. And at the end of the interview, the Hyakushiki is holding it up and like gesturing at it, but he's holding it upside down. He doesn't even know which way is up on this thing. It's sort of taken for granted now, but I wonder how far back this goes, that art speculation is a prime way for extremely wealthy people to sort of safeguard their money. (laughs) If that was sort of a known factor at that point, that adds to the sort of overall stereotype. Oh, (laughs) and uh, the carrying case. Ah, um, first of all, before we get to the carrying case, let's go back to English for a moment. In the title card for this episode, it's A Miracle of Rigazi the Sipper. As for the sipper-shipper issue, we actually have an answer to this, which is one of the benefits of this years-long process of accumulating knowledge about Gundam and Japan and anime. Because way back in season two, we encountered a similar question And we got an answer from one of our listeners, Rose, who tipped us off to the fact that there is a different way of romanizing Japanese words called Nihon Shiki romanization, as distinct from Hepburn style romanization, which is what we usually use. And in the Nihon Shiki style, the shi, the S-H-I sound at the beginning of shipper gets written without the H. It's just written S-I. So it's a little weird seeing it done for an English word, but I think that's what's happened here. There isn't really an SI sound in Japanese. There's shi and chi and si. Like there are, there are ways to approximate it, but there is no si. So a Japanese audience, having learned Nihonshiki romanization in school, as they would have, and not having a si sound would see this word and naturally read it shipper. Yes. As for the other word, as for the, <laughs> as for the other bit of English um, in this episode, um, there's a word on a sticker on the side of the case that the canon is placed in for transit. Um, and that word is one that I would be allowed to say on the podcast if we were discussing, say, a cat. But I don't think that's the context here. This wouldn't be the first time that English language curse words were 
included in the backgrounds of a Gundam thing. We noticed it in 0080. Yeah. Graffiti on the streets. And written on the side of some crates at the Federation base in episode one. What makes it feel slightly egregious in this case is that as part of graffiti in an alleyway, that feels normal. As the only sticker on the protective carrying case for a priceless piece of art, it feels weird. <laughs> it does feel weird. And in the episode, they show it to us again and again. And then it's like the final image of the episode. Big old close-up fade out on um, this sticker. Well, on the, the case with the sticker prominently visible, a TV playing static, and some... Uh, some pretty sick jazz music. <laughs> it's like we're in a jazz club for some reason there at the end. Well, this might be a good time to point out that in my research about tourism last week, I did find articles about the sudden resurgence of a jazz boom in Japan in the late 80s. We're jumping around a little bit. My impressions of these were not as cohesive <laughs> as they are for other episodes. But do you know what my favorite sequence was? The one I thought was the funniest? Ooh, um, was it when they were retrieving the cannon from the museum and they kept setting off all the different traps, like the pit trap and the Gundam hammer that drops out of the ceiling? Yes, and they always hit the Zok. Poor Zok. The guards are like, oh, hang on, we have to disable something or we have to get the actual statue because a bunch of them are standing in the room with the fake one. But instead of retrieving the actual statue, they keep repeatedly setting off traps, which always catch the Zok. But the Zok does all right for himself in the end, which makes it all okay. He gets a double pay, 100% pay raise. For doing such a good job. He did his best. He was really dedicated to it. The Rigazi's like totally chilled out vibe kind of threw me for a loop once I realized that the voice actor for the Rigazi was Bright Noah's voice actor. Ha! He finally gets to be like the main <laughs> character and he's so chill. And his Agugai partner was Camille. The Agugai says like two words the whole episode. <laughs> this is one I would love to see as a full series. I kind of got Cowboy Bebop vibes. Dangerous job for very little pay. And kind of like Smokey and the Bandit. It was good stuff. I would watch more of this. And I would definitely put this on my short list of SD Gundam shorts that people should actually watch. And now Nina's research on the fine art of tax evasion. Art features prominently in the Miracle of the Rigazi Shipper short. And I thought, when I sat down to this week's research, that I would be trying to identify the inspirations for paintings and sculptures that appear in the episode, explaining who Kanon is, and maybe looking into record-breaking art sales of the late 1980s. If I had time, I might look into tax evasion in Japan. Hyakushiki's rant about taxes raised my curiosity. What I didn't know was that these topics are largely connected. Famous paintings, fine art collecting, tax reform and tax evasion, wealth and scandal, all twining together right before Japan's bubble economy burst. The one connection I couldn't find was to a specific statue of Kanon. Kanon could be a research piece all on her own, but to give a quick overview, Kanon is the Japanese name for a Buddhist bodhisattva associated with compassion. There are other names used, and it is considered a particularly East Asian form of this bodhisattva, which spread from China. Sometimes described as the goddess of mercy, the earliest depictions of Kanon could change gender, could be whatever would best alleviate suffering in a given circumstance. But for hundreds of years now, Kanon has been primarily depicted as a woman. She is associated with maternity, birth, fertility, purity, relief from suffering, and vegetarianism, is the patron of mothers and sailors, and can grant filial children to those who pray to her. Quote, Some Buddhists believe that when one of their adherents departs from this world, they are placed by Guanyin, that's the Chinese name for Kanon, in the heart of a lotus, and then sent to the western pure land. 
Within Japan, many large temples are dedicated to her, including Shitennoji in Osaka, Sensouji in Tokyo, and Kyomizudera and Sanjusangendo in Kyoto. Statues of Kanon are a widely depicted subject in Asian art and found in the Asian art sections of most museums in the world. Making searches about the sale of any one particular Kanon statue basically impossible. Hyakushiki's art collection contains references to several famous works. On the left of the door is a portrait of a man in kimono and makeup, with what appears to be a seal stamp and a Japanese signature in the bottom left corner. This is likely inspired by the portraits of kabuki actors by ukiyo-e printmaker Toshusai Sharaku, whose portrait of Arashi Ryuzo I as Ishibe Kinkichi sold at Christie's for 22,000 pounds in 1989. To the right of the door is a painting with a sort of simplified church in the background, a vaguely human figure in front of it, and giant droplets of water coming down. The style made me think of Dali, but I couldn't find a specific painting that it might be referencing. Between glass cases full of small items and jewelry, none of it clearly visible, are several statues. One appears to be a Jizo statue. Jizo is another bodhisattva, commonly depicted with a bib and a traditional staff with rings attached to the top. Jizo statues are very common in Japan, but it's likely this one is meant to be an antique. Near the Jizo statue is a painting of a flower with a face at its center, the same flower monster that appeared in, I want to say, SD Gundam Gaiden. You'd be correct. While the style is not quite a fit, the color scheme is reminiscent of some of Van Gogh's paintings of sunflowers. Next to it is a small Picasso-style cubist portrait of a Gundam. Then a copy of Edvard Munch's The Scream. Below it is a sculpture I was happily able to identify right away, a copy of The Winged Victory of Samothrace, a marble statue of the goddess Nike, robed and winged but missing her head. Quick aside that of the top 10 most expensive art sales at auction during the 1980s, six were Picassos and two were Van Goghs. There's definitely more there, but time is limited and these were the pieces I could identify so far. Not only is this in keeping with one of my favorite Gundam animation traditions, embedding real artworks into the backgrounds, it brings us to the wild world of art collecting in the 1980s. At the end of the 1970s, the most expensive art sale on record was $5.5 million for Velázquez's Juan de Pareja. By the end of the 1980s, it was $53.9 million for Van Gogh's irises. In another example of how art prices ballooned in the 80s, a bronze sculpture of a ballerina by Degas sold for $380,000 in 1971. In a 1988 auction by Sotheby's New York, it broke records not just for a work by Degas, but for any sculpture sold at auction ever, selling for $10.1 million. Uh, I think you mean Sotheby's Auction House in New York. And these are just the publicly recorded sales. Private sales may have gone for even higher prices, and prices increased so much that all but the wealthiest museums were pretty much priced out of the market. Skyrocketing prices were driven by numerous factors, but the most relevant are the increasingly international market for this kind of art, especially as economic conditions in the 1980s increased the number of people wealthy enough to purchase and made a number of already wealthy people substantially wealthier and a, quote, growing belief that art is a good investment despite hard evidence to the contrary. Art had become an investment people speculated in, assuming that works by famous artists would appreciate indefinitely. There were also more of these works on the market due to changes in the U.S. tax code. Charitable donations of artwork were still tax-deductible, but at their purchase price, rather than at their current appreciated valuation. This made selling the more appealing option for artwork someone had owned for any length of time or if the work was by an artist whose works had suddenly become much more valuable. On top of these factors, publicity around high sales prices created a sense of spectacle. They were reported in the news and discussed outside of the previously rarefied confines of the art world and the mega-wealthy. 
Throughout the 1980s, Japanese collectors were described as driving demand for Impressionist and Post-Impressionist painting, dominating Impressionist collecting, and inflating the market by, quote, purchasing vast quantities of paintings at escalating auction prices. For example, Asuka International, owner of the Aoyama Gallery in Tokyo, bought $120 million worth of Impressionist paintings at New York auctions just in November of 1989. And Japanese businessman Saito Ryoe paid $82.5 million for Van Gogh's Portrait of Dr. Gachet in May of 1990. Remember that name, Saito Ryoe, because we're going to come back to him. There was at this time a fair amount of tax evasion in Japan. I couldn't find sources on how it compared to other countries in this regard, but in the late 1980s, Japan's tax authority estimated they were only capturing 70% of business income and only 50% of farm income, compared to nearly 100% of wage or salary income, since income tax was withheld from wages rather than being collected after the end of the fiscal year. The tax system was so complex that one source described it as bewildering and said that, quote, some part of the tax system is modified each year. The tax code was a significant instrument of economic policy, and so was used to help some industries and curtail others, and was used as a way to cater to special interests for political benefit. On top of all of this, Japan's banking system allowed the creation of anonymous bank accounts, and had ways for people and companies to more or less anonymously trade stocks. These accounts didn't have a taxpayer ID number or similar identifier, and so even if they were taxed, they'd be treated as entirely separate from the actual account owner's total income. Most of these loopholes benefited business owners, corporations, and people whose primary income did not derive from wages. I have to take a moment to describe a practice that was thought to discourage tax evasion, Japan's tax authority would publicly post and publish the names of individuals and corporations which filed returns reporting high income or large inheritances. These lists were also published by the press, and, at least at the time, there was evidence that some taxpayers would inflate their income so that they would appear on that year's list. In a way, it lets one brag about how rich and successful they are, but still act humble since they're not the one publishing it. Apparently, the lists were not enough to address the full scope of the government's needs, because in 1989, the LDP-controlled Japanese government finally passed into law the tax reforms that they had spent a decade working toward. The goal was to diversify the government's income, decrease the, quote, staggeringly large deficit, spur consumer spending, and, secondarily, to decrease the trade surplus, which was often a point of diplomatic tension. Debate on the floor of the Diet and in committee meetings was described as a melee, but the ruling Liberal Democratic Party was able to railroad the measures they wanted through the legislative process. These measures included decreasing the number of tax brackets for personal income tax and lowering the tax rates paid at the highest brackets, lowering rates on business income taxes, decreasing the inheritance tax, measures to improve collection of capital gains tax, the removal of a 20% tax on luxury consumer items, which included things like cars, consumer electronics, and imported wine and spirits, and the piece de resistance, a new 3% consumption or sales tax. Classic LDP. Just incredibly regressive. This 3% sales tax proved particularly unpopular, so much so that it harmed the LDP in a number of local elections. Part of the issue was that the LDP, so used to absolute power and basically no challenges to their authority, didn't put any effort into how these changes were explained to the public. But the greater part was that these measures were regressive. They're much more burdensome for lower-income people, and in fact, the lower maximum income tax rate decrease in inheritance tax, and removal of luxury goods tax all directly benefited high-income individuals. Plus, all of this was being put into place while the recruit scandal was unfolding. Average people felt pinched and were hearing daily news about millions of dollars in cash and stocks going to politicians and bureaucrats, 
whose disgrace, such as it was, was very temporary. They would resign, and the LDP would try to reinstate them as soon as they could. The recruit scandal was hardly the only major financial scandal implicating politicians, bureaucrats, and titans of industry. There were numerous high-profile cases of tax evasion, including two former Mitsui Trust and Banking Company officials who were arrested for allegedly evading taxes by not reporting a total of 3 billion yen, approximately $23.4 million, in stock trading profits. And member of Japan's House of Representatives and cabinet minister for the LDP, Imamura Toshiyuki, was charged with failing to pay taxes on the 2.88 billion yen, or $21.1 million, of profits he made on stock transactions from 1986 to 1988. Officials at three major banks were found to have issued fake certificates of deposit that clients could use as collateral for real estate loans. Other banks reimbursed major clients' trading losses while leaving small investors high and dry. To top it all off, while we think of the bubble economy as a time of general prosperity, the greatest increases in wealth were by people who were already wealthy, and the skyrocketing price of land had rendered homeownership an impossible dream for many ordinary people. All of this together, regressive tax code changes, bribery and corruption scandals, and a growing wealth gap contributed to a new, sharper sense of class conflict in Japanese society, at least from the perspective of the foreign press. And I think they were right. We can see that class conflict clearly reflected in the depiction of richest man in the world, Kyakushiki. Selfish, entitled, outspoken in his conviction that the rules don't apply to him, and snobby without any apparent qualities to justify his high opinion of himself. Now we find ourselves at the intersection of fine art collecting, tax evasion, and scandal. One article titled, Has Japan's Appetite for Art Been Driven More by Hunger for Culture or Profit? questions the motivations behind the art-buying spree by Japan's wealthiest people and corporations. Now, people have always bought art for all kinds of reasons beyond appreciation of art demonstrations of power and status, cultural cachet or control, and, yes, wealth preservation or generation. That is hardly unique to Japan. But there's also no question that many of these purchases were a form of financial engineering, referred to as Zytec. As one source explains, quote, many sought to take advantage of the ambiguous value of artwork, using them as a means of borrowing, lending, or even giving away money or evading taxes. Because artworks carry no fixed value, it is virtually impossible for regulators to know whether transactions are taking place at fair, inflated, or below market prices. One common example of this kind of financial engineering was that a company could get around transfer taxes by buying a work of art from an affiliate at a vastly inflated price. A contemporary source describes the Itoman scandal as the, quote, mother of all scandals due to the sums of money, the complexity, the range of assets, fine art, land, and securities, the colorful characters, the goodly list of bankers, Sumitomo, Saitama Kyowa, Fuji, and the amounts, which are still being added up, but currently top 1,500 billion yen, or 10.9 billion U.S. dollars. Thanks to that complexity, it was hard to find any one article or paper that explained the scandal in its entirety, but the art portion is easier to parse. Itoman, originally a thread manufacturer and textiles trading house, had begun investing excess cash in art and real estate during the boom years. Top officials within the company sold personally owned artwork to the company at inflated prices, defrauding the company and quote-unquote self-dealing, which Tom helpfully described as selling a thing to themselves with someone else's money. But even the art portion of the Itoman scandal is more complicated than that. In just a matter of months, Itoman had purchased $500 million worth of European paintings, thousands of works by the likes of Picasso, Toulouse-Lautrec, and Chagall, in an art portfolio that, according to Japanese newspaper reports, came with valuation certificates that later were discovered to have been forged. Speculation at the time was that art deals were a way to overpay for real estate, 
since the government had put in place strict controls meant to curb spiraling real estate prices. Many of the works were purchased from a gallery that employed the daughter of the chairman of Sumitomo Bank, which, due to cross-ownership and board memberships and so on, effectively controlled Itoman. Sumitomo was, at the time, the third largest bank in the world. And there was evidence that Sumitomo used Itoman for its riskier investments, then bailed Itoman out if necessary. When the art scandal was first revealed, a top Itoman executive who had come from Sumitomo committed suicide, and the chairman of Sumitomo, Isoda Ichiro, later resigned. The Mitsubishi Trading Company was also investigated by tax authorities in connection to their art dealing. In 1989, Mitsubishi purchased two Renoir paintings, identified by Asahi Shimbun as After the Bath and Young Girl Reading. The company claimed they paid 3.6 billion yen, approximately $26 million, for the two paintings, first declining to say where they bought them, then claiming they were purchased from two Frenchmen, of whom the government could find no immigration records, no proof these alleged Frenchmen had entered the country, and the Swiss address Mitsubishi claimed was theirs appeared to be entirely fake. A Tokyo art gallery, Art France, said they had sold the two paintings to Mitsubishi for 2.12 billion yen, though Asahi reported that it was in fact two transactions which took place on the same day through an intermediary. Curiouser still, Mitsubishi claimed to have paid with 36 checks of 100 million yen each. 21 checks are accounted for by the gallery's version of events, but what happened to the other 15 checks? These were supposedly countersigned under false European names. And Mitsubishi eventually sold the paintings at a profit to the Buddhist organization Soka Gakkai, which has connections to the Komeito opposition party. Common to both scenarios, neither company employed any kind of art specialist to assess these transactions, giving them plausible deniability for any overpayments. Finally, we have Saito Ryoe. Remember him? Born April 17, 1916, he was, in the late 1980s and early 90s, honorary chairman of the Daishoa Paper Manufacturing Company, which had been founded by his father in the late 30s. In his several decades as chairman, Saito built Daishoa into an international company with $2.5 billion in sales by 1989. Various articles and headlines described him as the Shogun of Shizuoka, rich, eccentric, and all-powerful, flamboyant, extravagant, and a brazen upstart. He lived in a walled compound in central Tokyo and, quote, Friends and associates say Mr. Saito made little distinction between his own money and the company's and was profligate with both. He was able to do this without shareholder interference because he'd maintained tight personal and familial control of the company. His stake was estimated to be around 10%, and his three brothers, plus all of his sons, held positions on the board or in management of Daishoa. He and his family exercised outsized power, with his younger brother, Saito Shigeyoshi, as the governor of Shizuoka Prefecture, and a son as a member of Japanese parliament. His children all married into the families of influential politicians and the management of major corporations. And Daishoa financed a number of political campaigns, including that of the mayor of Fuji City, where they were headquartered. Just three days after purchasing Van Gogh's portrait of Dr. Gachet for $82.5 million, Saito paid $78.1 million for a second, smaller version of Renoir's Bal de Mouvement de la Galette, setting a record for the second most expensive painting sold. Adjusted for inflation, these records weren't broken until 2006 for a private sale or 2015 for a public sale. The pre-sale estimated values for these paintings were $50 million and $40 million, respectively. It means he paid very nearly double what they were estimated to be worth at the time. I guess for the first painting, he paid like 60% more than they had estimated, and the second painting is very nearly 100% more. Not shy of speaking to reporters, he, quote, 
acknowledged that he could not assemble the cash to buy the Renoir and Van Gogh paintings, but had used his company's land holdings, emphasis mine, as collateral for borrowing. He also described spending $160.6 million for two paintings as no big deal, and claimed that he intended to keep the paintings in private storage for 10 years before sending them to a regional museum. He never explained why, but the Japanese press speculated that the paintings would go on view at the regional museum in Shizuoka at whatever time would be most politically advantageous for Saito's brother, the governor. Hmm. Saito also purchased a Rodin sculpture, one of eight casts of the Burgers of Calais, and when asked if it would also be sent to the regional museum, he told reporters, that is for my yard. Allegedly, he was, quote, openly proud to be the biggest individual taxpayer in Japan, holding a press conference to boast about his huge tax payment. The year after he bought the Van Gogh and Renoir paintings, he owed nearly $23 million in income tax from land he eventually sold to pay off the loan he took out to buy the paintings. At this press conference, he quipped that he ought to have the paintings cremated with him when he died to save his heirs having to pay inheritance tax on them. The international outrage over this comment led him to make another public statement saying that he was joking. But after his death in 1996, there was concern he had actually done it. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York wanted the Van Gogh for an exhibition and couldn't locate it. It wasn't until 2007 that the painting's new whereabouts became publicly known. It had been sold to an investment fund manager, Wolfgang Flotel, nearly a decade before. Taken all in all, Hyakushiki is probably an amalgam of various different mega-wealthy Japanese businessmen, but heavily influenced by Saito Ryoe. For those of you who were adults in 2008, I don't need to tell you what happens next. Inflated land prices give real estate owners more borrowing power. Access to vast amounts of money encourage riskier borrowing. And then when land prices tank, borrowers are underwater, left owing more than the assets they purchased are currently worth. The fine art market, especially with respect to modern and contemporary art, would tank in 1990 and 1991. The bubble burst, the Tokyo stock market crashed, interest rates went up. Quote, because art, like land and stocks, was often bought with borrowed money, unless the market keeps going higher and investors can sell their investments for a profit, they can't meet their interest payments. The result? Many small and some large companies are going bankrupt, and their involvement in the art market is surfacing. If this is giving you a sense of deja vu, it should. Next time on episode 6.13, Rave in a Cave, we research and discuss SD Gundam Mark V Part 4, Gundam Goninshu no Mononoke Taiji, and Horror Movie Scream. Sneak, sneak. Samurai Ghostbusters. Ooh. Practical effects. Okay, Zako are my favorite again. Musha Scooby Squad. Ghost Town. Eh? Get it? I get it. Minecart Roller Coaster. Betrayed by my own watermelon. And doozy bots. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. 
You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina. Is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? Wrong opinions like... In honor of Picurienta Poresu, this episode of MSB should have just been Nina and Tom making nonsense sounds and trusting the audience to decide what they meant. If people don't share wrong Gundam opinions like that, then they're just gonna keep building up inside. Until something terrible happens. Or, um, th- obviously this is entirely anachronistic, but you know what they look like? What? The robot from Big Hero 6. Mmm. Probably there were, like, promotional photos. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, entertainment magazines and stuff probably had uh, some American shows and mm-hmm. well, actors and represented. There are, there are anecdotes about these um, these designers and animators, including, uh, including Tomino himself, watching bootleg videos of Western sci-fi productions that some friend had like brought over uh, and using them for inspiration. There's something very pleasing about imagining kind of that reversal that in the same way that early anime fans in the United States were watching like bootleg videotapes with no subtitles Mm -hmm, and just text mm -hmm. descriptions of what was happening in a given episode. Uh, Japanese fans of American television were watching bootleg tapes of, like, investigative cop shows or whatever. (laughs) Cute.